Americans got extra help buying food during the COVID pandemic, but last week that money stopped. A food bank director says it's already hurting. It's a great big hardship on our clients. They're just already down and out, you know. For Sunday, March 5th, it's All Things Considered. I'm Michelle Martin. As violent clashes continue between Israelis and Palestinians, two parents who've lost children to violence share their thoughts. It's the cycle of violence that started up, but we don't know where it's going to stop because there is this extraordinarily right-wing government. And want to hear something out of this world? The folks at NASA have turned data about our universe into sounds. But first, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden is in Selma, Alabama, paying tribute to the heroes of Bloody Sunday, the infamous day in 1965 when some 600 civil rights marchers headed east from Selma in support of civil rights. But they only made it six blocks to the Edmund Pettus Bridge before they were attacked by state and local law enforcement. 600 believers put faith in action to march across that bridge named after the Grand Dragon of the KKK. They're on their way to the state capital of Montgomery to claim their fundamental right to vote, laid in the bedrock of our Constitution, but stolen by hate, harbored in too many hearts. With unflinching courage, foot soldiers for March for Justice March. Thousands are gathering at the bridge to mark the civil rights moment that led to the passage of landmark voting rights legislation nearly 60 years ago. And President Biden is pushing for passage of a bipartisan bill aimed at preventing train disasters. It comes after another freight train derailed in Ohio yesterday, the fourth in the state in recent months. And Pierre's Amy Held has more. Ohio residents were once again directed to shelter in place after a freight train went off the tracks near Springfield. No hazards were found on board this time. As a new rail safety bill seeks to increase inspections, workers, and fines on companies that break the rules. Ohio Senators J.D. Vance, a Republican, co-sponsored it with Sherrod Brown, a Democrat, who told ABC's This Week, with chemical cleanup still underway from another Norfolk Southern train derailment last month in East Palestine, people just want it fixed. They don't care about partisan politics. They care that this corporation continues to weaken safety rules, continues to be immensely profitable while undermining public health, public safety. House Republicans have voiced skepticism over the bill and accused the White House of neglecting East Palestine. Amy Held, NPR News. A new report from the real estate firm Redfin finds the majority of U.S. homes are now unaffordable for the average buyer. NPR's Arzu Rizvani has more. The ability to buy a home is now well beyond reach for most American households. Only 21% of homes for sale were considered affordable for the average home buyer in 2022, according to new data analyzed by Redfin. That's a 40% drop from the year prior. A couple of factors have contributed to the precipitous decline, a spike in mortgage rates and low housing inventory. The decline in affordability has been especially hard for black households who've long been at a disadvantage because of years of discriminatory housing policy that's affected intergenerational wealth. Only 9% of homes are within reach for black families, compared to 28% for white households. Arzi Rezvani, NPR News, Los Angeles. And you're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino in Boston. U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts Rachel Rollins is in Alabama this hour with President Biden. They're there to commemorate the 58th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. Rollins is leading a group of 30 other attorneys general to mark the 1965 police attack on peaceful civil rights leaders who are crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma. Rollins is the first black woman to be the U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts. Her group is also meeting with civil rights leaders in Alabama. There's a new call for the city to develop a plan to prevent further gun violence in Boston. The Reverend Kevin Peterson of the New Democracy Coalition is concerned about more violence this summer. We're disturbed that there isn't a clear and comprehensive uh, public safety plan being, being presented that could perhaps uh, get guns off the street and that could perhaps uh, save lives. Mayor Wu's office says her administration is working closely with neighborhood groups to prevent crime. It also points to the city's trauma team that immediately responds to violence. Peterson spoke out after Boston police responded yesterday afternoon to the murder of a man in Roxbury. South Boston State Senator Nick Collins is vowing to crack down on public and underage drinking at the St. Patrick's Day Parade coming up in two weeks. Collins says the drinking has gotten increasingly out of hand since attendance at the annual parade has swelled to more than a million people. We're working with the City of Boston Licensing Board, along with the Boston Police and uh, Transit, to ensure that we are mitigating any transport of alcohol and purchase of alcohol, particularly by underage people, and that public drinking will not be tolerated. Collins says political leaders are working with the MBTA to stop extremists from showing up at the parade. Last year, masked members of the neo-Nazi group held banners along the route reading, Keep Boston Irish. It's 5.06. In weather, a chance for some rain tonight. Temperatures near the freezing mark. Right now, we have 42 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the maxim that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. Former President Donald Trump closed out the annual Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, last night with a 90-minute speech that wound through a litany of his often-repeated grievances and ended on a target popular with others of his political leanings right now, the so-called woke. Change only happens if we plow fearlessly ahead and declare with one voice that the era of woke and weaponized government is over. That is our task. That is our mission. And this is the turning point and the time for that decision. For a year, CPAC has been a must-stop for Republicans looking to test the waters for a presidential bid or just to shore up their bona fides with a conservative base. But last week's conference was different. Some observers pointed out that it could have been called TPAC rather than CPAC, since many of the speakers were the former president's allies and family members. Some presumptive Republican presidential contenders didn't show up to make their case at the conference at all. In fact, some conservatives held a parallel conference in Washington, D.C. called Principles First, which was built 
billed as an effort to refocus the Republican Party on its core principles. Our next guest was a speaker at that conference, Mona Charon, a longtime conservative commentator and policy editor at The Bulwark. That's a relatively new media outlet founded by conservatives, which says it hopes to offer reporting and opinion free of partisan loyalties and tribal prejudices. And Mona Charon is with us once again to tell us more about it. Mona Charon, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Glad to be with you. So we have to start out by talking about Trump. So I wanted to ask what you made of the entire week at CPAC, its, its offerings, and also the former president's speech last night. CPAC has always been a little bit of a freak show in the conservative world. But in recent years, it basically just transformed itself into a cult club for Donald Trump. But in any event, this year, there is still that hardcore of Trump people who will show up. Admittedly, attendance was down. Many big donors stayed away. Ron DeSantis notably stayed away. But um, the fact that even after this president attempted to stage a coup, even after he has said explicitly that we need to repeal the U.S. Constitution in order to put him back into the Oval Office, um, there remain millions of Republicans for whom he is their preferred candidate. It is just mind-blowing. Are there any potential candidates out there that you think could be the standard bearer for this movement? Candidates are always going to be a matter of compromise. My sense is that if we can avoid the catastrophe of another Trump uh, nomination and, God forbid, election, we will have dodged the worst possible bullet. That, that is my chief concern. Let's talk about Fox News for a minute which has been defending itself against a, this $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit brought by the voting machine supplier Dominion Voting Systems. The filing for people who follow this revealed that Fox's biggest executives and stars expressed disbelief at Trump's claims that he won the 2020 election, even though they were publicly continuing to support that claim, you know, on the air. You wrote, I think, a, a pretty tough and I would have to say heartbreaking column about this for The Bulwark. I'll just quote a little bit of it. It says, if your doctor assured you that your skin lesion was benign because he thought this would be more welcome than the news it was melanoma requiring immediate treatment, the doctor would be guilty of malpractice and you wouldn't thank him. When Fox News and its competitors lie to viewers, they're endangering not their physical health, but their civic health and the good of the nation. What you're saying is, is that there is a whole group of people who are being deliberately lied to, and if they're particularly loyal to this particular source of information, aren't going to find out what is the truth. So, I, 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 what, yeah. what is the, I, I, I guess, mean, part of you your, know, the purpose of having a conference is to discuss a way forward. Did you come up with one? These are tough, tough questions. Uh, one of the things that I said in that piece is that, you know, we all like to get the news that's agreeable to us. I mean, that's true of all of us. I confess to it myself. I, I have a lot of trouble. I can't watch Fox anymore. Well, partly because they lie, but also because their their point of view is anathema to me. And I prefer other outlets. Now, you know, some people will only watch MSNBC. I mean, that's natural. But what I said in the piece is that when you choose a news outlet, it's not like choosing, you know, another consumer product, you know, where you say, oh, you know, some people like iOS and some people like Android. No, when you choose news, you have to be aware that 
the information that you are getting could hurt you the, or the lack of information, uh, even though it's pleasing, even though it may it, it fulfills all your priors, um, it, it still harms you to be lied to. And so that is um, what I, you know, we all hope um, to be able to get through to this uh, to this Fox audience that is so loyal. Um, and it's a hard, hard nut to crack. So Fox is clearly moving away from Trump. Um, he has not appeared on a Fox News show since November. And it's also clear from testimony in the Dominion lawsuit and other reporting that the powers that be at Fox are throwing their weight behind others. But is that and advance. I mean, it seems to be for them to sort of decide who they think the nominee should be in based on airtime as opposed to offering the information that people can use to then decide for themselves. I just is that is that is that a, a way is that an advance? I've got to say two things, Michelle. First of all, they're not acting like a news organization, right? They're they're making calls here based on their preferred outcome. That is already uh, illegitimate. But second, and this part is even worse, if Trump starts to look like a winner, they will flip back and we'll be back where we were a few years ago. That is conservative commentator Mona Charon. She's the policy editor at The Bulwark. Mona, thanks so much for being with us once again. My pleasure. Thank you. Last week, millions of Americans lost a portion of the benefits they received through the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP. The temporary boost to the program expired on March 1st for 32 states and the District of Columbia. It had already expired in the other 18 states. Food banks say they were already struggling to keep up with demand, and for many families, this has turned a tough challenge, getting enough good food as prices rise into an emergency. We wanted to hear more about this from someone who's seeing it up close, so we called Linda Jones. We first spoke with her in January of 2022. She's the co-founder of Alabama Childhood Food Solutions. That's a nonprofit based in Sylacauga, Alabama, that distributes food to people who need it. And she's with us once again. Linda Jones, thanks so much for joining us once again. Well, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to you calling. So when we talked with you just over a year ago, you told us that your group was providing food on the regular on a regular basis to about 160 families once a week. What about now? Well, now we are doing right right at 800 families once a month. It just keeps continuing to grow. The SNAP program being cut, that's going to cut people about $281 per person. And so we know that we're going to start getting more and more people calling for us. It's a great big hardship on our clients that come through to see us. They're just already down and out, you know, they don't have very much to begin with. And then when you take something else from them, and then with the prices going up, it's just extra hard on them. One of our clients who was elderly, she lives by herself and she's in, not in great health. She's a widow and uh, she lost her driver's license. And she said, I just can't afford $46 to go get another license. She says, it's not. It's just an ID because I can't drive anymore. And she said, I can't afford $46. She said, my rent went up $50. The light bill went up $61. And my water bill went up 20 
She said, and I just don't have any more money. When we last talked, you were telling us about some of the big price increases that you were noticing, even just for your own shopping, like things like the foil and things like that. Are there some things that you've really noticed that have just stood out to you over the course of the year? Well, uh, eggs, you know, bread even. Bread is almost 3 and $4. And then eggs, uh, there are 6 and $8 a dozen now here, and that's just unreal. Milk has gone up. Everything has gone up so much. Is there something you think that you would like people to know about what those benefits have meant to people? What are some of the other things that you're hearing from people you work with? Most of them just complain about everything going up. They can't afford their cars. They can't afford the gas. And so many of them will come like three and four in a vehicle just to be able to get there. I'm just wondering, though, if it's hard for you to hear these stories. I mean, you're doing the best you can, but I'm just wondering if it's hard for you to hear to hear this. It is very hard to hear the stories. I, I do believe in Jesus. So I come home every afternoon when I we have our distribution and I pray and pray and pray for the ones that have come through. And I'll call them by name because some of them I know their names and some of them I don't. I just say, Lord, you know who they are. I don't. And I'll pray for their situations because some of them got cancer. Some of them have heart problems. Uh, some of them have lost limbs. And it really, it, it hurts your heart to see these kind of people come through. But we're so thankful that we're there and we can give them the food that they need. And, and we love on them. We give them the love and compassion that they need at that time. Well, that's Linda Jones. We first spoke with her in January of 2022. She's telling us about how things are where she is now that the uh, SNAP or Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program benefits, the expanded benefits, are now being ended. She's the co-founder of Alabama Childhood Food Solutions. Linda Jones, thanks so much for talking with us once again, and you hang in there. I will. Thank you very much for having us, and I pray that this will people will listen and help people that are not are less fortunate than they are. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and online at WBUR.org. I'm Josie Guarino. The WBUR app is the easiest way to follow the news each day. One tap to listen live, another tap to pause and rewind. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. The time is 518, coming up at 6. It's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Discover a dynamic career with a master's in clinical mental health counseling. With individualized, experiential learning, you'll thrive. GRE and prerequisite courses not required. State licensure eligible. Now accepting applications for fall. More at bgsp.edu. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. President Biden visited Selma, Alabama today, commemorating the day in 1965 when 600 civil rights leaders marched to the Edmund Pettus Bridge to support voting rights but were attacked and beaten by state and local law enforcement. 
Members of the United Nations wrapped up two weeks of negotiations in New York last night, agreeing on a treaty to protect a biodiversity in the high seas, water located outside national boundaries. The treaty would establish protected areas for marine life. And at the weekend box office, Creed III punched above its weight in its first weekend in theaters with an estimated $58 million in ticket sales. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com Solterra. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. The stories emanating from the Israeli and Palestinian conflict we've been hearing about or living through recently are not new, but they should still alarm and disturb us. Last Sunday, hundreds of Jewish settlers went on a rampage through the Palestinian town of Hawara that left one Palestinian dead and injured others. Many homes were also set on fire. That attack followed the shooting of two Israeli settlers, two brothers, by suspected Palestinian gunmen earlier in the day. This seems to be a continuation of the violence that's been building since last spring in the West Bank, which Israel captured in 1967 and where Palestinians seek to build an independent state. After suspected Palestinian attacks on Israel, Israelis, the Israeli military began months of raids that it says target militants, but have often killed civilians, including a Palestinian-American journalist. The Associated Press says 62 Palestinians and 14 Israelis have been killed since the start of the year. At times like this, it's easy to tune out, to lose sight of the people who continue to lose loved ones, and to lose sight of those who are still trying to find ways to achieve a lasting peace. So that's why we called two members of the Parent Circle Families Forum once again. That's an organization of Israeli and Palestinian families who have lost children to violence. The two people we called are Robbie Damlin, an Israeli whose son was killed by a Palestinian sniper in 2002, and Bassem Aramin, a Palestinian whose daughter was killed by Israeli border police in 2007. We've spoken before, and I was so happy that they agreed to speak with us once again. So thank you both very much for being with us today. Thank, thank you. you. So can I just start by asking how you are? Robbie, do you want to start? Yes, I guess so. I, uh, my life is so complicated and so strange. And if anybody would have predicted that this is where I would be at my age, I would never have believed them. Yesterday was the anniversary of David's death, and I went to the cemetery and met so many of his students who have continued to come for all of these years. Mm -hmm. And this morning we celebrated a wonderful day all together with Palestinian women from our group, Israeli and Palestinian women, and listening to their reports on a new program that we are doing. It's a, a wedding planning business. Mm -hmm. And then coming back to Tel Aviv, hardly being able to get home in time because there are huge demonstrations going on in Tel Aviv. The cycle of violence that is terrifying, 
the burning, I call it a pogrom, that happened in Khawara as a result of two people being killed, two Israelis. It's the cycle of violence that started up, but we don't know where it's going to stop because there is this extraordinarily right-wing government that is in control. Hmm, thanks for sharing that, Robbie. And I'm so sorry again for the loss of your son and Bassem, as I am for the loss of your daughter. Bassem, can I just ask how you are? Uh, the situation is really very bad, as exactly as uh, Robbie described it, to face this or to start again this dark ages that we never expect. Hmm. Robbie, you are saying that what's upsetting and frightening is the feeling that the government turns a blind eye or that the government itself is complicit in some ways with this kind of mob violence. Would it be accurate to say that that's a big part of your distress? The government is not complicit in the actual action and there's no accountability in most cases. But we have the minister who claimed that the whole of that, of the whole of Khawara should be burnt down. Now, what should we say to that? Hmm. How can we live in this situation? And yet, within the work of the parent circle is this miracle and light of us continuing to meet, of us continuing to trust each other, and not to look for revenge, but just to try to change hearts. And this is a difficult task, but there is a miracle in the element of the work that we do. Basel, do you feel that way? Yeah, this is every meeting. We think that this will be the last meeting because we don't know what will happen. They make everything possible against us to, to prevent us from meeting, from continuing doing this circular job between people, real people. So yes, it's also it's a very problematic that the government itself adopted this policy against us. As I said, it's always tough for the Palestinians for the first time, it become real dangerous for the Israeli society. Both of you have been pointing out that this is all taking place against the backdrop in what is understood to be the most conservative, rightist government ever, I think, in the history of the, of the country. And there are demonstrations, there are huge demonstrations. Um, and a lot of this has to do with the direction of the governance. And as you pointed out, this minister made this comment that has been condemned and condemned yes. by the United States, for example. It sounds like this feels like a really fraught moment. Do these demonstrations offer a sense of volatility and the fear of the situation? Well, you know, I think that it's not about hatred, it's about fear. And watching the demonstrations, I'm so proud that there are people of all ages, of all colors, of all beliefs, right, left, wearing yarmulke. All kinds of people have come to this demonstration. It's not a left-wing demonstration, although the government would like it to be seen as such. Hmm. We have to believe that we're making a difference. We cannot sit back and let this dark time win. So we went to the high court a couple of times because of being stopped from doing the ceremony. And we may have to do that again. But one can only fear for the judicial system because that, for me, was the last bastion of democracy. Hmm. I think a lot of people wonder, like, what is keeping you engaged at a time like this? Because it, it is so easy to feel, you know, hopeless. So, Basim, can I ask, like, what, what keeps you engaged in this process? And, and, and is there something that gives you hope? Uh, it's not hope, it's faith. 
It's not written anywhere that we are going to continue killing each other forever. Believe me, those group of terrorists, uh, according to the Israeli law, even those ministers, and according to the American laws, they will lift and we will remain. We are not the first or the last conflict on earth, unfortunately. We prove that we can live together if we find a brave leader who take us towards the future and to release us from the very painful past, I believe in one day we will have peace agreement, we will live in peace. But when, how much blood we need from our kids from both sides? So before we let you go, we, we've talked in the past about some of the specific activities that your group has developed in order to give people a chance to encounter each other. Like we've talked about, you know, the peace tents, for example. What, what are some of the things that you're doing right now to advance the goals that both of you have? You know, um, I spent a lot of time with the Palestinian women, finding out what it was that they really wanted to do. And they said that they would like to increment their income. And so each woman told me the thing that she liked to do best. And one was flowers, photography, nails, designing dresses, um, making sweets, cakes, doing menus. So we are opening a bridal service. Some 40 women just completed the course, each woman in the subject that she liked the best. And we got wedding dresses from a wonderful group in Chicago, and each woman got a certificate today. And that's a miracle. And I'm hoping that they will create a lot of income for Palestinian women. It's time for women to come to the table. It's time for women for to have their voices heard. Hmm. Basim, final thought from you? We have a lot of projects. Uh, one of them that I'm very proud of, the narrative project that we bring uh, Palestinians and Israelis, homogeneous groups from the same profession, just to teach them how to listen to each other, to listen to the narrative of the other. And the results are amazing when the people meet as people, without politics, just as human beings. Always they try to find a third narrative in order to exist uh, and to try to live together, which is the majority uh, want to do so. Basim Arami works out of the Palestinian Office of Parents Circle, and Ravi Damlin is a spokesperson for Parents Circle. Thank you both so much for talking with us today. I certainly wish you the best. Thank you so much for giving us this opportunity. It's so important not to take sides, not to be pro-Israel, not to be pro-Palestine but to be pro the solution, to be pro peace, because otherwise you simply import our conflict into your country and create hatred between Muslims and Jews. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. We want to go back to something that's been on a lot of our minds lately, the big price increases for certain items at the grocery store. Now, there are a lot of different reasons for the increases. Russia's attack on Ukraine is one. But when it comes to eggs and chicken, the main culprit is something else. It's an outbreak of avian flu, also known as bird flu. According to the Centers for Disease Control, nearly 59 million domesticated fowl, mainly chickens and turkeys, have been affected just in the U.S. And it's not just hard on consumers. It's hard on poultry farmers. We've really begun to stop thinking about it as an outbreak but more as a new reality. That's John Brunquell. He's the CEO of Egg Innovations, which produces free-range eggs, about a million a day. 
He says he was drawn to this work in college when he first learned about free-range farming. I walked into my first cage-free barn in the early 90s, and it kind of shattered everything I thought I knew about commercial egg production. I was trained that cages were good, and I just couldn't wrap my head around watching that chicken walk around in a cage-free barn and saying, this is bad. And, and so that began a, a journey of learning for me on, you know, what is welfare? Caring for his chickens is a big part of the job, and Brunkwell says this outbreak has been devastating. The people who find that they have it, many times they close the barn the night before and everything looked good, and they open the doors the next day and, you know, they see a large number of birds that are dead. Uh, so it affects the birds very, very rapidly and to a large population of that, you know, of that flock. And so it's, it's a very deadly virus that we're dealing with. And, you know, we don't, at this point, really have a solution as an industry. As a result, Brunquill says this outbreak has affected how poultry farmers do their work. Certainly there's a cost. We've all elevated our game for biosecurity, whether that's truck washes or limiting traffic, um, how we communicate with our farms and, you know, limiting people who are not essential from being on the farm. It's eliminated a lot of normal industry uh, movement, you know, whether it's salespeople or even colleagues wanting to visit each other's farm. That has all essentially disappeared. It's not just affecting how business is done now. It's also having knock-on effects. So what happens when you have a catastrophic disease, you know, like avian influenza, where we lost 50 million birds, it puts an immense toll on the whole supply chain. And so there's many examples where a complex that might have eight or 10 buildings on a farm, some of those barns, it may take them up to six to nine months before they can even get baby chicks to refill those barns. Supplying those chicks and raising them to maturity takes time. Brunquill says that means the decreased supply of chickens is likely to linger. And that's assuming we have no additional significant outbreaks here in 2023. And if we do, that just resets that number lower again. So we're going to be living in a, in a world of elevated cost simply because of supply and demand for a while. And when people ask him if there's an end in sight, Brunquill says it's complicated. There really isn't a clean, simple answer that anyone can say with certainty to say, uh, this will be over in May of this year or August of this year. We simply don't know. And where the anxiety lies is we're about to enter the spring migratory season. We simply have to keep our guard up as high as we can and, you know, then cross our fingers and, and pray a little bit and say we hope we don't get infected. That's Egg Innovation CEO John Brunquell talking about how the current bird flu outbreak is affecting his industry. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
Judith Heumann, an important leader for disability civil rights, died yesterday in Washington after a brief hospitalization. She was 75 years old. NPR investigative correspondent Joseph Shapiro knew her for some 35 years, and he's here with us to tell us more about her. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here, Michelle. So who was Judy Heumann, and why was she so important? She was a founder and an icon of a civil rights movement that most people probably don't know about, the disability civil rights movement. It's one passage of laws that protect disabled people from discrimination. But Judy also demanded that we change the way we think about what it means to have a disability. And this goes back to the 1960s. She was saying, you're wrong if you think I wish I wasn't disabled. I've been in this wheelchair since I was a kid. This is who I am. My disability, that's not the problem. The problem is society. I would love to know more about how she became an activist. I mean, how she became a public figure. Yeah, well, she was 18 months old. It's 1949, and she contracts polio. Her mother had to fight just to get her into schools in New York City. And the law that says kids with disabilities are guaranteed in education, that wouldn't exist until 1975. When Judy got through college, she was trained as a speech therapist. New York City wouldn't certify a teacher in a wheelchair. In 1973, Congress passes one of the first laws to protect people with disabilities, but the Nixon, Ford, Carter administrations, they avoided implementing it. So in the spring of 1977, disabled people took over a federal building in San Francisco for 26 days. And disabled adults, then they were treated like children. They're expected to be polite, not take over federal buildings. And a federal official came to reassure them. And Judy, she wasn't having any of his promises. She's just 29. And here's what she told him. We will no longer allow the government to oppressed disabled individuals. We want the law enforced. We will accept no more discussion of segregation. And I would appreciate it if you would stop shaking your head in agreement when I don't think you understand what we are talking about. I just would love to know before we let you go about, you've spent a lot of time with her and you've written about how she thought about what it meant to be identified as disabled. If you just talk a little bit more about that. I wrote a book about the disability civil rights movement. It's called No Pity. And it was Judy who told me about the joys of being in a space exclusive to people with disabilities. When she went to a summer camp in upstate New York, that was just for kids with disabilities. And it was the one place where she wasn't different. It was a disabled space, just like going to a women's college or a black college. And it's where she developed pride and her self-confidence. She taught other disabled people to be proud of who they were. But here's something else that she started talking about only recently, a few years ago, she was diagnosed with cancer and she hid it. When her hair fell out from the chemo, she wore wigs and hats and she couldn't fool some of the women in her synagogue who recognized those hats and she started to be more open. She said, look, my whole life, the first thing people notice is that I'm in this wheelchair, that I'm disabled, so I shouldn't hide a more invisible disability either. She sounds like a remarkable person, so thank you so much for telling us telling us more about her. That's NPR correspondent Joseph Shapiro. Joe, thank you so much. Thank you for giving me the chance to talk about Judy. This is NPR News. 
You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Josie Guarino. Remember, start your week tomorrow with 90.9 WBUR. You'll hear about why Massachusetts officials are planning to close the state's 11 free COVID testing sites at the end of this month. Listen again tomorrow morning. In sports at the Garden tonight, the Celtics host the Knicks, 7.30 tip-off. Increase in clouds tonight, low 40s, and we could see some showers later this evening. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, highs in the mid-40s. Right now, we have 41 degrees in Boston. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. President Biden is pushing for passage of a bipartisan bill aimed at preventing train disasters. This after another Norfolk Southern freight train derailed in Ohio yesterday, the fourth in the state in recent months. This one, though, wasn't carrying toxic chemicals like the one that derailed in East Palestine about a month ago. China says it will increase military spending this year by 7.2 percent, higher than the year before, largely in line, though, with its military growth in previous years. And 33 mushers are taking place in the Iditarod dog sled race in Alaska today, setting off from Willow and headed to Nome. The trip is expected to take 10 days as they travel about 1,000 miles over two mountain ranges and frozen bodies of water. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the maxim that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, publishers of the Kids Count Data Book, providing data on the well-being of children, youth, and families, available at aecf.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. You're in your first year of college and nothing's going right. You're fighting with your roommate, stealing from thrift stores, eating too much and sleeping too little until one day everybody, your family, your classmates, you have had enough. You go home, and finally somebody calls it. It's bipolar disorder, and the road to getting back on track is not going to be an easy one. That's the premise of The Year Between, the touching, sad, funny, at times hilarious feature film debut of writer-director Alex Heller, who also plays the main character, Clements Miller. Here she is trying to explain her diagnosis to her family. All right, so you got mania and depression. There's basically two diseases but one. So then it's mainly mental? 100% mental, Dad. Well, that's good. At least you're going to survive it. I mean, not necessarily. As a future med student, I obviously know what a mental illness is. There's a medical explanation for why she's a mess. And that's, like, rude, (laughs) but accurate. Can I go now? Where do you have to be on a Monday night 
As you might have guessed, the film is inspired by Heller's own experiences. And when I talked with her recently about the film, I started by asking her how she landed on treating what could have been a really heavy story with comedy. I always have just been interested in comedy and like to use humor to connect to people and in a bit of a more challenging way sometimes, you know, like the character in The Year Between, using it as a coping mechanism and sometimes in a really inappropriate and distasteful way. But the reason that I think comedy is important for this story is because for me, like, I have seen a lot of content surrounding mental illness that feels very heavy and dark and depressing and often represents the most extreme parts of mental illness. And not to say that there isn't like validity in all of that. It's just that I wanted to add something to that that shows the in-between moments, the more mundane, the hilarious, the everyday, because I've been, you know, treated for over 10 years now and that's most of what it has been for me. You know, there are really high highs and there are really low lows, but there's a lot of other stuff too. And so I really wanted to show this like holistic version of it. And I will say that The Year Between is a comedy based in honesty and truth and lived experiences. It is not a PSA on how to <laughs> handle mental illness. Everyone no. needs to find their own journey. And so, yeah, I, w- I just wanted to add that as well. <laughs> well said. So thanks for that. Yeah. Because, yeah, definitely no. But, um, <laughs> but, but one of the other things that really struck me is that you let people in on how hard this is for Clements, your main character, but you also let people in on how hard this is for everybody else in the family. Right. And I just want to play this clip from the film. Remember, the the setup is that Clemens has, is a first year in college. She's left school and moved home because her illness is spiraling. And this is the scene I'm going to play where her younger sister, who's played by Emily Robinson, who's pretty tightly wound, um, mm. is really, <laughs> really worried about getting into a good school. And she gets her first acceptance, and Clemens doesn't take the news well. You, you, you thought I might be what? Like proud? Like you thought maybe I'd give you like a little gold star on your on your spreadsheet of accomplishments? What's your problem? Why don't you go back to texting your stupid ass friends about how much we embarrass you? Just yeah, call call up swimmer Kyle and and cry about how hard your life is. Right. Sorry, because your life is so hard. Yeah. yeah. Do you have cancer? Don't even don't. My mental illness. Are you dying, Clements? Because mom might be, and you're just, you're making it so much harder for all of us. So thank you. That's why Olaf, who plays the brother, and as we said, Emily Robinson plays Clements' sister. Steve Buscemi, hilarious as the dad. And Jay Smith Cameron plays the mom. I think people might know her from her role on that, the HBO show Succession. So going back to something you said a few minutes ago, that you didn't want to make this like a PSA. But I think that there's something really... Um, important about the fact that you give these other characters their space to talk about how this is affecting them. I think other films, I'm not a student of this, but I think other films that I've seen, you know, maybe there'll be like one tearful scene with the sibling where they Mm -hmm. say, this is so hard for me too. But you really give everybody kind of their space here. I was just wondering why that was important to you to do. Thank you for saying that. I mean, from the very beginning, when I was diagnosed, my mom was sitting on that couch next to me when I received the diagnosis. She came to my first few appointments. I just remember feeling like in that moment, my family was diagnosed with this mental illness in a weird way. It it wasn't just something that 
was given to me. I mean, it's it was something that my family was dealing with my entire life, but also didn't have the words for or know quite how to help me. And so basically, I definitely want to make a case with this movie that, you know, mental illness doesn't just affect the person who has it. It's it's very impactful to everyone who cares about that person and everyone who's in their circles in life, you know, friends, family, romantic people. It's just, it affects others. And what they choose to or have to go through is brave in its own right. One of the things I'm trying to convey to people is that this film really is really funny, but it's not stupid funny. It's funny in the way of things that could really happen mm-hmm. in life. I mean, all of the characters are hilarious, like the, you know, your colleagues at the store, you know, and trying to sort of deal with you. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what that reminds me of is that I think I think one of the other things I noticed and appreciated was how you focused on Clements as a person. You get to see her finding a job eventually, you know, making friends eventually, Mm -hmm. (laughs) going to parties, you know, hooking up, making dumb teenager mistakes. And so it's, you know, yes, it's her bipolar disorder, but but it's one part of her. It is not her, if that makes sense. It's kind of like a coming-of-age film. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yes. I think that is a huge feat if we're able to do that with this movie because we don't want to show a character who's defined by their mental illness. This is a character who is struggling with mental illness, but is also struggling with a certain type of personality that has that is partially a product of the mental illness and behaviors and coping mechanisms, but is also just this person and how they grew up and who they are now and what they're going to do with that in order to function in society. So it's a duality of you know, treating a mental condition, but also just like growing up and becoming an adult and... There is a line that, I don't know if it's so cringe to quote the movie, but the the line that I think Clemens has that sums it up, which is a question to her therapist, which is, besides the whole mental illness thing, I'm wondering if I have a bad personality, which is a real question and something to reckon with. So yeah, and then I just want to say- Forgive me for laughing when you said that. No, please. I wasn't sure. We should laugh. Well, I don't know, because it was one of those lines that when she said it, I felt like as a mother, I was like, oh, but then it was really funny. <laughs> I love that. Because I kind of wanted to vote, you know? Yes. <laughs> and to her point about humor, I'm glad that it that it doesn't read as farcical. I think it's important, well, it's my taste to just have humor that's so rooted in truth and honesty rather than a more sort of jokey or elevated uh, humanity. I like to like live in the most ridiculous parts of the believable real world. It's important to always rely on truth because this is going to be polarizing to some people and you have to be able to come back to saying this is from lived experience. This is based in truth. We're not making fun of bipolar disorder. We're just exploring different parts of it from an honest place. Do you feel like you learned anything about yourself in the course of making this film that you wouldn't if you hadn't made it? At a certain point, this story stopped being just my story and, and my personal journey or my diary entry. It, it's, a, it's a movie. I had to let it go. I had to make it a piece of art and make it accessible to other people. And, and I think something I definitely learned is how to create art from a personal and truthful place while being able to also separate yourself from it. And that has been really important while dealing with some very heavy topics for myself. And I also, I learned about my ability to do 
all these big roles at one time writer director actor in the movie and getting wigs put on me every other scene <laughs> and it's a lot and I guess I'll pat myself on the back for for doing it and for and and, and yes it was extremely intense you know especially with the confines of an indie movie but I think that I by having my hand in all these different things at once a benefit of that is that I think the movie does end up with this cohesive feeling and voice that is, of course, a cumulative effort of our an amazing big team, but part of that also being like my being able to have hands in, in multiple things. That was writer and director Alex Heller, who also stars in her new movie, The Year Between, which is out now. Alex Heller, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Michelle. And finally today, what if instead of seeing the universe as an explosion of light, we heard it? What would that sound like? Kimberly Arcand is a visualization scientist and emerging tech lead for NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory. She's part of NASA's Sonification Project. It's an effort to turn data collected from the outer reaches of the universe into sounds. The idea is to allow visually impaired people to experience the galaxy. But the result, a collection of 16 of these interpretations, is an album with a beauty all its own. This, this piece is really exciting for me because this is a result of a black hole that we were looking back in like 2003. And a colleague had come out with this fantastic research work showing that it was emanating like the deepest sound in the universe. There's a very supermassive black hole at the center of this cluster of galaxies, and there's all of this hot gas surrounding it. And that black hole is kind of like burping out into that surrounding gas and stuff. And that's causing these pressure waves, which are sound waves. And with excellent math, you can figure out that it's essentially a B-flat, about 57 octaves below middle C. This on vacation, which is just a translation of data into sound, is taking that note that's out there in the universe that's too far away for us to hear and too deep, and we're taking it and resonifying it, so bringing it up into the octaves that humans can hear in, um, which I think was really pretty exciting. So the sonification project actually began because of the pandemic. You're separated from your community members, your colleagues. And for me, the idea of the Sonification Project was essentially a way to keep working with colleagues and community partners who are blind or low vision. And this was a way to sort of reach across the distances, uh, I guess pun intended, um, but still the distances that had been created during the pandemic. X-ray light is not naturally perceivable to humans, right? We can't see them with human eyes. We can't experience them unless we do a process of translation. So most of my work has been about translating it into images. Uh, and I just realized after a few years of that, like, well, that's leaving out segments of the population. There's no reason to just prioritize sound when you're working with something that can't be naturally seen regardless. Uh, we have a scientific story that's being, you know, expressed through this data, through this captured light um, through a number of different telescopes. And we have to translate that into something we can either see or something we can hear. The Galactic Center. It's 
it's one of my favorites because it's one of the first ones we did. It's like this very busy downtown hustle and bustle region of our galactic core. much happening and it makes for a beautiful image but it is very dense and very busy when you translate into sound when you map all of that data into something you can hear you're able to process it in your mind differently right you can pick up different pieces at different times right you have you have time you have the gift of time in music that is a very different thing the cool gas and dust, you hear it in those sort of waves through the piano and those very sort of um, fierce looking structures that you're seeing in optical, you're hearing it as this very sort of plucky sound. And when all three pieces are being played together, you have these moments, these little solos, and then these beautiful harmonies. And it just makes you sort of sit back and look at your data differently. Like what, what, have, I, what have I been missing? The Chandra Deep Field South was very special for me because that's sort of an image only a scientist could love in a way. Like the image itself, it's just speckles of paint on a black canvas. It doesn't get across that cool science where let's point a telescope at a patch of the sky for a really long time and see what comes up. And this X-ray telescope found a population of thousands of black holes. And you can hear the differences in the energies when you're listening to it. You can hear um, just sort of that glorious like population of black holes. This is not a me story. This is a we story. Like this is just, you know, hundreds of people work on the satellites and the data processing and all of the people that are involved in these projects. It really is a, a labor of love. I, I think at the end of the day, I get to swim in this beautiful deep ocean of data. And I, I want everybody in that ocean with me. I don't want to be the only one swimming. That was Kimberly Arcand, visualization scientist and emerging tech lead for NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory, taking us on a trip across the universe with the new album, Universal Harmonies. It will be available on CD, vinyl, and streaming platforms.